0: Hello and welcome to the Over and Back Classic NBA podcast. I am Jason. With me as usual is Rich. Hello Rich. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. Uh congratulations on being the named uh, the new president of basketball operations for the Los Angeles Lakers. Must be Thank a you. big yeah. honor for you.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it, w- it wasn't hard either. You just got to kind of get in there and, and work your way through the the organization and then, you know, one week you're I'm on the panel of, you know, ESPN NBA Countdown, the next week I'm the GM of the uh, Lakers. So that's pretty yeah. good. It's uh, it's a uh, president. I, I, not GM, President of Asp Operations, of course. Right. You know, it. Comes, with it comes with, the title. Comes with more money. So it, it definitely is pretty cool. But yeah, what a uh, what a what a coup by Magic. Yeah, it, you know, it we, is. We've, right? we've added light to the. Uh, we, we uh, you know, a few months ago did the the episode of you know when Magic requested a trade because everybody's got Magic as this kind of like happy go lucky like ah shucks kind of guy, but like ah deep down there Magic can can can. He can work his way through uh, whatever he needs to get done too. He's a, he's still a businessman at heart. I mean, definitely these days, you know that he's a shrewd businessman. But yeah, this was a this is an all time great coup by Magic Johnson.
0: Yeah, He can be ruthless if if necessary. You know that's uh, something we found out about Magic over the years. So um, yeah, so, so this made us think about other legendary players who. Hit the trifecta, of course. You know, had legendary um, NBA careers, among the best players of all time. Also, were head coaches, and also were team executives. So, um, it, it's not that uncommon. There, there are you know dozens of, of players, you know, just r- r- ranging from run of the mill NBA players to you know great players. But in, in terms of absolute superstars, there's really only a handful of you know players. I think that you know you can plausibly make that claim to have held all three positions.
1: Yeah. And, and one of the things, too, you'll notice um we'll, we're going to discuss, obviously, the stars here and then later kind of list some of the other guys that, that did it. A lot of them you will notice are older. Like it does not happen all that often anymore. I mean, a lot of the guys are are 70s and 80s guys like former, you know, decent players that, that moved up or whatever. It is happening less and less as as, you know, teams realize that the pre- well, some some teams, but not all teams realize that, you know, very often it, it's probably a better idea for your GM and your you know, basketball operations team to be not necessarily guys that were really good at basketball, but guys that actually understand, you know, the business of basketball and the business of player acquisition and and, and all that sort of stuff. So we are getting a little bit less of that, but you will notice that a lot of the seventies, a lot of the eighties and and of course, you know, even into the sixties too, a lot of those will come up and, and those type of guys that that were players, then coaches, then executives. It's becoming way more specialized these days and it's much harder. But then again we have, you know, two coaches in the league right now that that, you know, went kind of a a, a a different route like a Steve Kerr or Fred Hoiberg you know went from player to executive then to coach or whatever which is very strange usually it's the other you know the player coach executive so uh it's just kind of strange how how it's sort of evolving uh this trifecta over over the years
0: yeah and um of course you know players did not make the kind of money that they were making you know that they're making now in previous decades so it made sense you know you could have a still a fairly lucrative salary as a coach or as an executive or now you know you know especially if you're a star player you've made so much money in your career you don't necessarily need to you know have those positions you can do other things you don't necessarily have to work you know all that kind of stuff
1: did you see alan iverson's quote this week about uh why he would not get into coaching
0: uh, it had something to do with the, uh, the the fact that he did not want to coach anyone who was making more money than he was. Exactly,
1: which I thought was just perfect Alan Iverson, uh, given, you know, his uh – potential financial issues which sure. are fun but no I just like that because yeah again that, that's it right there like it, I, he's a guy that why would he want to coach like that doesn't that's not very fun like it's not like he needs to supplement his income and coaching is a terrible thing nobody likes to coach like it's awful you you don't sleep you're on the road you're watching fit. like people that love it love it but like it's gonna be really hard to find an next player who, who made you know 150 million dollars over their career, two hundred million dollars or whatever in in the career that then when they're done goes yeah you know what I'd love to you know make a quarter of that and work you know quadruple the amount of time and 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 hours that I did as a player I mean it's gonna be impossible to find many guys or not impossible but it's gonna be hard to find guys. That really want to do that too, especially moving up the coaching ladder too, because it's, it's harder these days to, to just kind of get a job right away. You, you know, many of these guys will, will mention here retired and they got a job, you know, like, oh, cool, you know, their franchise then gave them a job. Some guys were player coaches, you know, things like that. Where now you got to move up the ladder. You look at guys like, um, you know, with Tyron Lou who who had to really work hard for about ten years or so. Jerry Stackhouse now is, is still a D league coach. Uh, guys really have to. I mean, Brandon Roy is a guy who's going up through the, the high school ranks right now. So it's 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 just not this immediate thing where like you retire and then the team just bestows upon you a coaching position. You got to work your way up. Uh, you, you know, a guy like a Patrick Ewing is still working his way up the ladder as well. So it's just it's a little bit different now than, than it was uh, you know many many years ago too to, to to get to that level too as a head coach.
0: Yeah, and there are of course exceptions to that. Obviously, Jason Kidd, Derek Fisher. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, so, um, but yes, I, 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 think for the most part there is a reluctance to immediately have somebody, especially moving into the, you know, GM or president of basketball operations. I mean, I, I think that's uh, become a more, you know, expected to be more of a complicated. Um, Job, you're supposed to have you know, more in depth knowledge of the uh, game than you know a player is likely to have. A more broad knowledge of the game than a player is likely to have. You know, coming out of retirement, coach, uh, it, can, it can be a little bit different. But obviously, that transition has been generally rough for um for you know most guys who've tried to do it. You know, more immediately in recent years, so mm-hmm. probably better off uh, you know, d- developing some other knowledge and developing you know a, a different base before you uh, plunge into that. Yeah, absolutely. So first we have, uh, well, I guess we'll go through Magic Johnson a little bit because he uh, did coach the uh, Lakers. In addition, of course, to his uh, acclaimed career of, um, you know, the three-time MVP, five-time NBA champion, ten-time All-NBA, obviously uh, Hall of Fame. You know, one of the greatest players of all time, possibly the greatest point guard of all time. Probably. So um, he, you know, we don't really need to talk a little about, about his playing career. I think everyone listening to this has a pretty good sense of it. But his time coaching may not be as well known.
1: <laughs> no, uh, he was hired March 23rd, 1994. Uh, he replaced Larry Fund, uh, who went uh, 108 and 119 as coach of the Lakers yeah. uh, before that. Uh, Magic was hired uh, basically a handful of games left in the season. Um, what well, was interesting, though, and and of course we know, you know the, the story of uh, Magic, but it feels like He's still, I mean, he's only 34 at this time, which still feels so young. And I know, obviously, of course, you know, he had to retire early, but for a guy it started, you know, in the late 70s, you know, 1979 or whatever, for him to still only be 34. It just seemed like he was so young still at this time. So, you know, 34 year old head coach in Magic Johnson. Um, what's interesting though is this had been building a little bit uh, of him trying to be a coach. Uh, he attempted to come back as a player, of course, in 1993. Um, there were some issues and fears among, uh, you know, addition, uh, you know, other players of, you know, we we're still in this weird, you know, now it, it seems like commonplace, but, you know, then it was still this worry of okay, well, I don't really know. You know, he's HIV positive. Like, what does that mean for me? What if he gets a cut? Like, what if he spits? You know, all this weird. I mean, we we kind of forget now because we kind of laugh at it now. But there there were real fears of like we don't know how to get. You know, how this is happening and what all the stuff going on. So there were there were players that were you know. I wouldn't say rightfully so. I mean, they were pretty ignorant to it, but still, that didn't want to play with Magic Johnson. So he he aborted, you know, his idea of, of coming back in 1993, um, and then you know was intrigued about the possibilities of coaching the league. Um, this is a quote from uh, the New York Times article that came out when uh, when he did get hired, uh, and said that he uh, he reportedly rejected opportunities to coach the Lakers during the last off season, as well as the Atlanta Hawks. Now that would have been awesome. Definitely. Obviously, uh,
0: it, well, I guess with the way it turned out, maybe it wouldn't have been awesome. <laughs> maybe but it, not, but still. But, like, uh, nice. The nil-
1: aesthetics of Magic Johnson as the Atlanta Hawks head coach is... is- it would have been you an know, interesting footnote in uh, Hawks <laughs> history, for sure. Uh, and then Johnson had also attempted to get involved in ownership during this time because he wanted to get back into the game, uh, of course, even though he couldn't play. Uh, his bid to become part of the new franchise in Toronto was thwarted when the team was awarded to another group. So he wanted to get involved in kind of the ownership group of Toronto. Of course, they moved to another group, and, and we'll, we'll talk about a, a man who uh, – Became one of their executives later that was a former player. We'll, we'll get to him in a little bit. But anyway, now Magic the coach. They won their first game with Magic as the head coach 110, 101. It was a victory over the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, was interesting about this team as well, they had five former Magic teammates on the roster. You had Vladdy Divac, Eldon Campbell, Tony Smith, Curse Rambis, and James Worthy. This is the final year of James Worthy. Uh, also, former teammate Michael Cooper was brought in as an assistant coach because Magic, you know, needed some, somebody that he uh, knew well on the bench with him. Um, Lakers, they played well initially. They won five of their first six games under Johnson, but then lost the next five. And then he announced that he was resigning after the season, which I guess he uh, did not enjoy losing all that much. So then they, uh, they finished the season on a 10-game losing streak, and unfortunately, Johnson's final record as head coach was 5-11. and So uh, he stated then afterwards, uh, this is again from a New- another New York Times piece, that it was never his dream to coach, and that he instead choose to, uh, chose uh, to purchase a 5% stake in the team in June of 1994. So he said, I never wanted to coach. Who said that? Uh, Coaching is yeah. stupid. I don't want to do that. Like, <laughs> no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> like so that was the uh, Magic Johnson coaching,
0: yeah. Career, and, so. and there were stories about you know that Neem team was notoriously immature. Um, you know, Cedric Sabalo, say so I, I believe Nick Van Exel at the beginning of his career just. <clears throat> A lot of guys that Magic felt you know, didn't really have the professionalism that he was looking for, the uh, you know the maturity that he was looking for, and, and felt the game has sort of changed from you know his generation to this you know new younger generation that he felt was more entitled and you know and, and a little bit less appreciative of the um, you know past struggles of the game and the sacrifices and the professionalism and blah blah, which you know sounds like uh, the type of you know anti millennial talk that we uh, get these days. But <laughs> exactly.
1: uh, Magic may have had a point. No, and and yeah, and then we came back to play. Um, you know, a, a year or so later, there, there was also those same issues, and he was vocal about it too, like calling those yeah. guys out, particularly Sabalas and, and Nick Van Exel. I know he called out on multiple occasions for just not having the the drive that he had, not having the maturity that he had, and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, it was uh, it was not something that went away um, after this year. So, yes. so
0: looking at some of the stars on Magic's level, uh, Elgin Baylor, um, of course, the great Lakers star of the uh, '60s. 11 uh, time All Star, 10 time All NBA, yeah. um, t- tremendous uh, scorer and tremendous, you know, all around, just did everything player above the rim and uh, it, it could do everything, <laughs> of course. Uh, as a player, uh, famously went to eight finals and was never able to win a championship with the Lakers. Uh, So after he retired in 72, right before the uh, Lakers went on a 33-game winning streak and had the, up until that point, best season ever with the, you know, Will Chamberlain, Jerry West, and, you know, the guys, Um, he became uh, an assistant coach under the uh, New Orleans Jazz with uh, Butch Van Bredikoff, who had been his his Lakers coach for a couple seasons. Uh, He ended up taking over um, midway through the 77 season. Um, The uh, Jazz actually... uh, uh, he had a twenty-one and thirty-five record, but they did improve uh, generally with with him, especially the play of a uh, Pete Maravich, who averaged more than thirty points per game that season, and um, and, and Gail Goodrich was there as well. and it, And the next season, they would. Um, Actually, looked like they were going to be making the playoffs. And then Mirovich had a serious a knee injury, and at that point, the team completely fell fell apart. Uh, Baylor's uh, coaching record: two full seasons after that, eighty six and one thirty five overall. Obviously, the injuries to Mirovich and other struggles, um, you know, depressed that a little bit. Um, then he uh, he coached the Jazz for their final year in New Orleans, and then after uh, they moved to Utah, uh, replaced Elgin with uh, Tom Nasalki.
1: Yeah, and then Baylor uh, moved to the executive uh, branch of the NBA world. Uh, 1986, he was hired by the Los Angeles Clippers as the team's vice president of basketball operations. I uh, was there for 22 years, and the Clippers, unfortunately, during that time, managed only two winning seasons and amassed a win-loss record of 607 and 111, or what was it, 1,153. So, uh, not not great for the uh, the old Clippers there. Uh, also, only one playoff series win during that time. Uh, it wasn't all bad, though. Uh, of course, that one playoff series win, uh, Baylor was an executive of the year in 2006. Uh, uh, as the Clippers won their first playoff series in Los Angeles behind a young core of uh, Elton Brand. Corey Maggetti, Chris Kamen, and also they added veterans, you know, uh, uh, Casino uh, Mobley and Sam Cassell to a team that that, that worked out uh, a fun little team, but uh, of course did not really have uh, a real long time as, as being a good team. And But uh, at, that, at least that point, they looked like a fun team that, that maybe had a few years in front of them, but uh, did, definitely did not. And it did not end all that well. Of course, it's the Clippers, so it's not surprising. But uh, in February 2009, Baylor filed an employee uh, employment discrimination lawsuit against the Clippers. Team owner Donald Sterling, team president Andy Rosner, and the NBA. He alleged that he was underpaid during his tenure with the team and then fired because of his age and race. Uh, Baylor later dropped the racial discrimination claims in the suit, uh, and the remaining claims were rejected by a Los Angeles state court jury uh, by unanimous vote of 12-0. to 0, But still, there had always been sort of rumblings of uh, of what happened when Baylor was there and, and kind of the mistreatment uh, of Baylor, um, possibly as the Clippers. And, and initially when this came out, I know there were a lot of people that were like, oh. And then, you know, as more and more stuff about Donald Sterling came out, it was like, oh, Elgin was probably right. It was probably pretty terrible to work for Donald Sterling for all those years. But uh, 22 years uh, as a Clippers exec is pretty cool uh, for Elgin. And and during that time, uh, you know, made some good moves, made a lot of bad moves, too, because they weren't a very good team at all.
0: Yeah, the best moves that I found were um, uh, trading Danny Ferry, who they had selected as the number two um, overall pick and did not want to play in – uh, the, for the Clippers, ended up actually going to uh, Italy and playing. Um, he traded for uh, Ron Harper and a couple of uh, a couple of first round picks and a second round pick. And Ron Harper ended up performing very well for the uh, Clippers, although he eventually decided he didn't want to play there either. Um, and then, a uh, theme, yes, <laughs> and, and then the other one would be a uh, trading um, Marco Yarick to the Minnesota Timberwolves for San Cassell and a 2012 first round pick, which ended up being Austin Rivers. So it was. Um, I, I was actually sledged by the Pelicans and then ended up going back to the uh, Clippers later. But uh, so obviously getting Sam Cassell for Marco York just by itself, not to mention that pick is uh, quite a, a haul uh, and ended up leading to, as you mentioned, the, the the best years that they had. Unfortunately, that was cut short by Elton Brand's injury and other uh, issues. Cassell getting old. Yeah. And, and, and uh, there were some disagreements there. U- usual Donald Sterling stuff. Um, the, the, You. There's a litany of moves that you could uh, say were the worst move. Probably um, selecting uh, Michael Olikandi, um first overall 1998 was probably the uh, worst move so we're actually uh, i'm, I'm going to be talking to um mcminnis who wrote the book the curse which is uh, about the uh, clippers um saga I mean, it's basically going going through the clippers a year by year i i'm most uh, mostly through the book and it's fantastic i'll be finished with it of course when i do the interview so you get the chance to hear a lot more about the uh, clippers struggles in an episode next week
1: Yes, and and for people that are w- wondering as well, one, one of the worst Clippers trades well, was not a Baylor one. It was the uh, uh, when they traded, um, I think it was the, so they, they I think they wanted uh, they got like Jamaro Moon and Mo Williams <laughs> and traded like a you know a future 2011 first round pick in Baron Davis, and that uh, future 2011 first round pick ended up being Kyrie Irving. So that's yeah, <laughs> not great. But uh, that was not a Baylor one, though. So that that's okay. That was uh, that was someone else. So. Yeah. That was got afterward. Yeah, that uh, the
0: um, Neil O'Shea, I believe. That was. Uh, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. That well, ended up his be- being his, but he's usually pretty good. But yeah,
1: you know, that one was not a great. One, well, one. I make mistakes. <laughs> yes, you really need Mo Williams, though. You got to get Mo Williams. Yes. whatever you can do to get Mo, you got to do it.
0: So. Yeah, absolutely. Mo Mo. Um, <laughs> so next, we have Larry Bird. Uh, also, you know, one of the uh, great players of all times in the eighties. You know, uh, it'll be, of course, be fun with you know him running the Pacers and uh, Magic running the Lakers, and the idea of them um, collaborating on trades and uh, so forth. Um, you know, oh, three times Isaiah to, Isaiah to get another team. We're all
1: set. <laughs> hey, here we go. Maybe Dominique could start. You know, just maybe that maybe someone wants to hire Dominique. I don't know. Yeah. Get Atlanta, all the maybe, you know, what are you guys doing? They're just kind of spinning their wheels, anyway. Yeah, I'm Mike supposed. Budenholzer, you know, yeah, exactly. I <laughs> can yeah,
0: right? Yeah, i coach Bud. right? Let's get yeah. Dominique in there, exactly. Yeah, so yeah, get, get all the 80s uh, icons back, <laughs> yeah. You know, like, maybe, get,
1: maybe everybody just goes crazy. Maybe this is the beginning of every team just being like, well, forget it, why not? Like, yeah, I the, hope I actually kind of secretly hope that is what get I get mean. the old gunslinger in, you know, so <laughs> um.
0: Uh, so he had, of course, you know, three-time NBA champion, three-time league MVP, you know, all, all the uh, accolades, one of the great uh, players of all times. And then, you know, he, uh, after he retired, he sort of transitioned into a um, special assistant role for the uh, Celtics for, uh, for a few years and then eventually made his way
1: on to the Indiana Pacers. Yeah, in 1997, he accepted the uh, position of head coach of the Indiana Pacers and, um. Here's a quote from a New York Times article as well. Uh, Larry Bird elected yesterday to return to his native Indiana to coach the Pacers instead of remaining in Boston, where Rick Pitino initiated a new era by taking over as coach and president of the Celtics. And if you ever need a uh, a shock of all shocks, is look at what Rick Pitino signed for, uh, how much money they gave Rick Pitino to be the coach and president of the Boston Celtics in 1997. It is uh, pretty startling. But uh, anyway, uh, Bird, he replaced Larry Brown, who had left the Pacers um, and... Uh, his first year at the Helmbert led the Pacers to a uh, fifty-eight and twenty-four record. That was the uh, their franchise best, or the NBA Indiana Pacers franchise best, because the ABA team had had, had won a few more. As well, But for the Indiana Pacers of the NBA, that was the franchise best at the time. Um, and they made a good little playoff run. They even pushed the defending champion Chicago Bulls to a seven-game uh, series in the Eastern Conference Finals. So Bird initially, and, and if you look the prior year with Larry Brown, they had kind of been mediocre. So it was a nice little um, change of pace for Indiana. and They looked like they kind of had things going here. Uh, Bird won NBA Coach of the Year honors and became the only man in history at that point to win the MVP and Coach of the Year honors. So MVP as a player and Coach of the Year as a coach. Uh, The following season, the Pacers went 33-17. and Of course, this was the lockout-shortened season. Uh, They put everything together, though, in 2000. They uh, they won 56 games and reached the NBA Finals. Unfortunately, they were defeated by the Kobe Shaq-led Lakers. And this was, shockingly, Larry uh, Bird's final game as head coach because when he signed, he said, I'm going to be here for three years, and that's it. And those three years were up, and he said, I'm out of here. So that was the end of Larry Bird. Yep,
0: and he was uh, smart about... uh Delegating a lot of the work to his assistants, including Rick Carlisle, who um, you know, understanding that his strengths were not necessarily in the, uh, you know, the X's and O's and and things that they were, you know, much more in the larger picture of things. And and when he became president of basketball operations of the uh, of the Pacers, coming back in two thousand and three, that is sort of the. Took on a similar role. Um, they, of course, had a, a, a tremendous team during that time with Jermaine O'Neal and Ron Artest and you know Reggie Miller toward the end and some other uh, top talent. And then the Mouse and the Palace, of course, derailed all of that. But uh, eventually they were able to rebuild after you know, a few years of struggle in the 2000s. They did pretty well in getting um, Danny Granger and then later on getting, um, of course, uh, Roy Hibbert and especially Paul George. Uh, and then he was named executive of the year in the uh, 2012 season. Uh, they He did take a year off um, after the 2012 draft, um, decided to uh, that he was going to leave. But then uh, almost executive of the year later, came back and was the uh, president of basketball operations again, which he has continued to be. Uh, been up and down a little bit in recent years. Obviously, they you know had, had some really good teams with uh, George and uh, Hibbard, you know, facing off against the uh the heat and you know getting some good pe- playoff battles um and then you know once paul george suffered his injury they sort of re to constitute a new team around him they're sort of average uh, this year but i would say the best move would be of selecting paul george in the 2010 draft they also got lance stevenson that year in the second round as a 40th pick not not too bad obviously lance uh, flamed out but for a couple years he was pretty strong uh the worst move some good candidates here but i i think it's the uh uh, the, the trading white for black uh, trade of uh, acquiring um, Mike Dun. Hey, Ike Diagu is black. That's true. That's
1: true. Uh, the uh, but yes, overall most
0: right tr- trading Mike Dun or getting Mike Dunleavy and Troy Murphy and trading away Al Harrington, um, Stephen uh, uh, Jackson, uh, Sarunas Javikavis and uh, and Josh Powell. So.
1: Um, yeah, that, they got much it, grindier. They got much more <laughs> annoying and grindier in like one move. So that right. that was definitely true. But uh, they needed that annoying that annoying grindy team was the first one that kind of made a, a playoff push, though. So that, then they eventually got you know, of course when when George emerged and yeah. Granger was still at his you know peak of his powers, and Hibbert or whatever. But that first little grindy Pacers team, that, that's the one that got them to the. You know, got them starting with their little playoff run. And they were a fun team as well. One thing I've always liked about th- this era of the Pacers is they kind of did it uniquely. Because you know, a lot of times, you know, you got to kind of tank. And everybody knows you know, the best way to, you know, be great in the NBA or, or, or you know, make that completely transform your, your organization. to be bad for a little while. Get, you know, a superstar, a top, you know, pick or whatever, and move up the ladder that way. Well, they were always, like, they stayed competitive almost while they were rebuilding too, which is, is a unique thing. And it helped that Paul George, you know, is the 10th overall pick, which is not a, you know, a... Uh, uh, A Super late pick but not a really early pick either And him emerging as a superstar was a huge part In them you know rebuilding While also still being okay which Was a cool thing for that franchise too because They you know they still have problems with attendance Even when they're good so like A a prolonged period of them being bad for five or six years Would would, might you know really really hurt that Franchise and then luckily they really haven't had that Underbird they've always been kind of okay But at the same point they've never really been title contenders Either except for maybe one or two years uh, With George um, at the peak of his powers Mm -hmm. Absolutely
0: so next we have uh, George Mikan. Speaking of George, um, of course, one of the uh, great players of the forties uh, and fifties um, had uh, w- led his teams to uh, seven championships in eight years. If you include the uh, NBL and BAA, and of course the NBA once those two leagues merged and um, uh, you know, you uh, can't say enough of him, of course, about him being the, the great player of his time and the uh, you know, basically the face of the uh, league. And, um, uh, the other things did not go quite as well for him. Um, he was an executive before he was a coach, which is, is unusual. So we'll talk about the executive, um, stuff first, but, um, he, he was basically from 55, 56 after he retired, um, he uh, he was you know the executive on record for the team. Uh, the the best move he made during that time was in the 1955 draft, uh, selecting Dick Garmaker in the uh, first round. And we talked about him in our uh, Forgotten All Star show, where he had, I think he had four All Star appearances in like five seasons. Didn't, his career didn't last long, but he was you know a pretty acclaimed player for his day. Even though the Lakers struggled during those years, uh, the worst move was uh, a, a, a large scale trade that sent uh, Slater Martin to the Knicks for. Uh, main piece there was Walter Dukes and that was not a good uh, talent exchange for the Lakers. Slater Martin still had some strong years. He ended up going to the St. Louis Hawks pretty soon after that and then keying them to their, you know, um, finals runs against the um, Celtics at the end of the 50s and early 60s.
1: Of course, Jerry Bird in there too. So that's always good. Jerry
0: Bird. Yes, yes, yes. hilarious. <laughs> and, and and Phil Jordan too. Not <laughs> I, know, I love those yeah. things, like Jerry
1: Bird and Phil Jordan, like a little like yes. like if people had just known, like if you had known at the time, like I don't know, Jerry Bird played eleven games in, in the league and was yes, not, not very good at yeah. basketball at all. So not a not a large uh, a huge miss there, but uh, still six no. six. You know, six, six, Jerry yeah, six 6'6", Jerry Bird. Yeah, Jerry Bird. yeah, little shooter, a little outside shooter from Corbin, Kentucky. Yeah. It was just <laughs> the Hick go. from Corbin. You know, <laughs> yeah. the old, his old nickname, the famous nickname, the Hick from uh, Corbin, Kentucky.
0: So. E- exactly. Yes, very famous. So uh, eventually, <laughs> um, the, the Lakers coach, uh, John Kundla became general manager, decided uh, to make Mike and the coach of the Lakers not so good. Uh, they were 9-30 that year. They still had Vern Mickelson was kind of the last holdover of those, um, of the dynasty teams. Larry Faust had uh, come over uh, they also had Slick Leonard, of course, would later be the uh, coach of the uh, Pacers, Frank Selvy, and Hot Rod Huntley. Uh, they were nine fifty three that year, one of the worst seasons in Lakers history. They did end up getting Elgin Baylor, however, and turning things around there. But by that point, uh, Mikan was no longer in the uh, picture.
1: No, yeah, so not not a great tenure on, on really either end for Mike in there, yeah. but uh, he, he definitely made everything more right uh, as commissioner of the ABA though, so that, yeah. uh, that all worked out real well. well yeah, <laughs> maybe didn't work out the best, but he did. Uh, nice. No, just... He he did
0: uh, a couple of good things. He did were, um, uh, of course, uh, we've talked about it before, were uh, instituting the uh, three point line and uh, popularizing the red, white, and blue ball.
1: So yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, I, I think I'm pro Mike as, as ABA commissioner. A lot of stupid stuff too, but I, I think mostly good stuff too. He he was not uh, he 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 was willing to take risks, and I think that was the huge part of of what was important about whoever would was going to be the commissioner of the ABA is to to want to be different. And Mike and, and always did want to be different as, as commissioner there, so I yeah. can't really complain about that too much. So. Yeah, exactly. So uh, so next is Willis Reed. Um, he
0: was of course the the great Knicks uh, player. Was MVP, two time NBA champion. The of course, the courageous, you know, coming down the tunnel in Game Seven uh, moment when
1: he's dealing single handedly winning the game for the right, match, of right, course. yes, exactly. According to the legend. carrying that, that Clyde Frazier on his back, <laughs> right, you know, yeah, exactly. Clyde tells it all the time that same story, you know. Clyde had nothing that game and just needed Willis to do everything. So absolutely. So um, five time All NBA
0: uh, player, uh, Hall of Famer, all that good stuff. Um, as a coach, it did not work out quite as well.
1: No, he uh, he replaced, uh, replaced Red Holzman uh, in 1977. He led the Knicks to a respectable 43 and 39 record. Uh, then the next season, Reed left the team. 14 games into the season, uh, they were six and eight at that point. Uh, Holzman took back the reins, and he would stay there for an additional four years. So that was kind of the end of, of, of Willis Reed as New York Knicks head coach, but not the end of uh, Willis Reed as coach. He then was the head coach at Creighton University from 1981 to 85. Uh, a volunteer assistant coach at St. John's University, um, and then also later in his career served as the uh, an assistant coach for the Sacramento Kings and Atlanta Hawks. And then in 1988, you know, almost eleven or uh, almost exactly eleven years after. I became a coach of the Knicks. Uh, he returned as coach of the New Jersey Nets. Uh, this was one week after the Nets star forward and his cousin Orlando Woolridge was suspended by the league and, and was uh, to undergo drug rehabilitation uh, too. So that was kind of interesting. But um, uh, Reed went seven and twenty-one in just 20, uh, twenty-eight games uh, during his debut, uh, and followed that up with a disappointing twenty-six and fifty-six record the following season, and then was relieved of his duties. So that was the end of Willis Reed, the coach. But it's not not you know. De- de- he resurrects his career a little bit. Don't worry. Yes. In
0: fact, he's hired immediately as the uh, general manager and vice president of <laughs> right. basketball
1: operations. So look,
0: you suck, but maybe you're better at this. And yeah. You know, yeah, I, uh, that yeah. yeah, that wasn't that uncommon in the 70s and the 80s. And even I think somewhat in the 60s where they, they would, you know, they would fire the coach, but they would promote them upstairs because general manager was not thought of as the. Necessarily, the, you know, uh, senior position or the, the more coveted position at, at that point, because there was a lot of travel, a lot of scouting, a lot of, you know, c- kind of the, the grunt work that we think of now in, in terms of more of, you know, the scouting role as opposed to, and like the, you know, mundane business role as opposed to the, you know, the team shaping role was an aspect of it, but there was, you know, a, a lot of crappy aspects to it as well. So, you know, it wasn't necessarily as coveted uh, as it, you know, as it kind of is now, even though obviously it's a, it's a hard job now, but it's, you know, it's a hard job with status now yeah exactly so um he did he did some strong things actually uh he drafted a Derek coleman and kenny anderson uh, acquired drazin petrovich and you know, they were the nets were a solid team in the early 90s they had uh, chuck daly as their coach and uh, looked like they were up and coming unfortunately the drazin petrovich death uh you changed the course there um and uh, he ended up kind of having more of a senior position, you know, more more of an honorary role um, later on with the Nets, and then the. Um and then later on with the Hornets, but was it was more of a, you know, um, not as a basketball decision making role as much of more of just a, you know, kind of an ambassador type thing. So, um, but the Nets, eventually, you know, they built themselves into a brigade team in the, uh, in, in the, took a while, but in the early 2000s, of course, made the finals two years in a row. Um, I would say the best deal was acquiring Draza Petrovic. They did not have to give up all that much. Um, they traded uh, Greg Anderson, and they also got Terry Mills out of it for a couple seasons before he, you know, had had some pretty good time in uh, Detroit. And uh, and they they did give a, a first round pick, but yeah, I mean, obviously, Drazen ended up you know becoming a legend in his short time with the uh, Nets. Um, and I would say the worst move was uh, November third, 1992. They traded away uh, Mookie Blaylock and Roy Henson to the Hawks for Ramil Robinson, who was a notorious Boston. Mookie Blaylock obviously was a, a really good player in the nineties for the Hawks.
1: Yeah, that's a good one, too. And, and I, I, uh, Reed also became the vice president of uh, basketball operations for the New Orleans Hornets um, in 2004 as well and stayed there until 2007. So he had a little bit of a post-Nets career uh,
0: yes. as well. But. Yes, indeed. Um. So speaking of Louisiana, Bill Russell. Yes. he. Uh, uh, we've talked about Bill Russell a few times on this uh, podcast. Perhaps. Have we?
1: I don't remember. Uh, <laughs> did we? I don't, when did possible. we do that? Yeah, it's possible. Was there like an entire series of episodes that we did focusing on – one player in this particular case bill russell i don't i don't think so but okay i mean if you say so jason possibly
0: so um 11 time nba champion five time nba russellmania for people that, yeah it you know, was yes. yes it was russellmania yes. going yeah. for it's good good little series but anyway go on <laughs> so uh, so he um he was player coach of the uh, of the celtics in um 66 uh, or 67 68 and 69 they won the championships in the final two years and um in the first year, they broke their streak of eight straight uh, titles and um then he, uh, he he left uh, and cut all his ties with the uh, Celtics. It was out of the game for a while. The 1973, uh, he was lured back by uh, Sam Shulman of the uh, Seattle SuperSonics, the owner, with this uh, a, a huge, you know, Godfather type offer of of, of big money and total control and, and and all that sort of thing. He accepted it. Um, they had some good moments. They did, did have their first playoff birth in franchise history. They, you know, they they were. They were, they were pretty good, but it kind of ended in some disappointment and acrimony, uh, 162, 166 overall record. So, you know, they were overall a fairly mediocre team. And then immediately afterward, the next season, they would uh, eventually get Lenny Wilkins and they would go win championships. So um, so it, it, it's a, perhaps a little bitter for that to have um, happened. And then, even worse situation. He, um, 1987, after uh, several years as an announcer, he went back to uh, the NBA with the Sacramento Kings. And uh, the less said about that, the uh, better. They were 17 and 41 in 58 games before he um, was no longer the coach. But he did. Uh, he, he was an executive for another uh, couple season and a half or so, and yeah, was not uh, not not the best run for for old Bill. <laughs>
1: No, yeah, the best move, uh, probably LaSalle Thompson and Randy Whitman to the Anna Pacers way in Tinsdale. Uh, Tinsdale was a big part of that team for a few years um, as well. Uh, worst move, uh, it's hard to pick just one, um, so I know you here pick two, which is, is a good thing. Probably more than two that you can pick, but uh, probably the worst, trading Otis Thorpe uh, to the Rockets for Ronnie McCray and Jim Peterson. And then also, I think the one of the worst ones of all time is Purvis Ellison as a number one overall pick in the nineteen eighty nine NBA draft that uh, did not work well at all. <laughs> it was Purvis was off the team after you know very quickly. I mean, we talked about him not that long ago when we talked about Anthony Bennett and and, and worst uh, you know number one overall picks. And Purvis is, is right up there as, as as one of the worst of all time. So. Yeah,
0: and in fairness, that is a notoriously terrible draft. So right, um,
1: Danny Farrow was number two, and he was like also not a very good pick. And, and like, yeah, you really got to go to like four. You know, Sean Elliott is top five. Glenn Rice is top five, but you're not getting any stars. Like, I'm, I'm trying to think of who, what guy is like the most. I mean, I, oh, if you if you sort by wind shares, it's kind of funny here. So if you sort by win shares, Vladi Divac is the most, the highest, and he was picked 26th. The second highest is Clifford Robinson. And he was picked 36th. And then the third highest is uh, Sean Kemp. And he was, you know, of course, you know, way later in the draft as well. So, yeah, nobody in the top 10 was, was really worth all that much. So,
0: yeah. Uh, and yeah, no one in the Hall of Fame here, actually. Um, although one, uh, Tim Hardaway, uh, who had the fifth most win chairs of this class, is a finalist for the Hall of Fame. make it, and We're going to talk about him very soon in an upcoming episode. But other than that, yeah, there's, um, you know, it, it's after 10 or 11 players, it, it gets pretty uh, bad pretty quickly. So, <laughs> yeah,
1: it's not good. So, um, yeah, Purvis is 17 <laughs> in wind shares in this draft. Like, one of the biggest busts of all time is still in the top 20 of wind shares in his, his entire uh, that's that's impressive. So. Yes, yes,
0: for, impressive
1: is definitely a word for it. Yeah, yeah, hey, he had 20 points again that one year. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the ball, I think they won like 10 games that year or something like that, or uh, I'm 25. With the guy that we're going to talk about here in a little bit. So anyway, yeah. Well, there you go.
0: There you go. So our uh, next player, uh, Isaiah Thomas, uh, always a favorite here on the Over and Back (laughs) NBA Podcast. Of course, two-time champion with the the Pistons and 12-time All-Star, five-time All-NBA type player. Um, Lots of good stuff as a player. And... uh, as a coach and as a GM, not 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 so much. Uh, why don't you take the coaching and I'll take the GMing.
1: Okay, well, it, it's a, completely out of order. It's hard to do an order here because he bounces around a bunch oh, of yeah. times. But but do you want well do you want to start with executive and then uh, sure. go to coach? I say it's impossible to figure out well, why he kept getting all these jobs. I have no fucking clue. But uh, right. he bounces all over the place. So it is, stick with us here. We'll try to add dates to all this. But all right. uh, he bounces yes. many times. So, so
0: yeah, I'll, I'll start with that. Then yes. Okay. Uh, so he retires after um, suffering. I think it was an ACL injury that basically ended his career. Uh, he then became part owner and executive vice president for the Toronto Raptors in uh, 1994, uh, was there for four years, and then left after a dispute with new management. Um, he uh, th- There was some good there, actually. Uh, drafted Damon Stoudemire, Marcus Camby, and most importantly, um, I, which I think is the, by far the best move of his um, uh, of his career as a, an executive was drafting Tracy mcgrady out of high school which was a, a pretty big risk at the time and um you know, he was you know one of the first um it was the, the third season of high schoolers being um taken you know after uh, garnett of course in 95 and, and um isaiah seriously considered taking garnett and basically didn't because of you know where the uh, team was in his um you know, where where it was at that point and the risk that was involved in, in doing that. But he did have an eye certainly for um, talent. That's one thing he was always fairly good at. But, yes, yeah, so, so so things ended there. And then, of course, the Raptors uh, struggled for the uh, first few years under his uh, stewardship, you know, pre-Vince
1: Carter. Absolutely. And then the year 2000, Isaiah Thomas is hired by the Indiana Pacers to take over for the departing Larry Bird Um So, of course, Indiana, as we mentioned with the Bird part, uh, they had made it to the NBA Finals the year prior. Uh, Unfortunately, under Thomas, the Pacers fell to 41 and 41. Uh, They were 42 and 40 the next season. Uh, In his third and final season as head coach of the Pacers, uh, they went 48 and 34, uh, but were eliminated in the first round of the playoffs by the six-seeded Boston Celtics. So um, definitely an interesting part here with this this, uh, Pacers team because uh, in the offseason, Larry Bird became the Pacers president of basketball operations. And his first act was to replace Thomas with former Detroit Pistons head coach, Rick Carlisle, a guy who was an assistant under him. And almost immediately the Pacers started doing a lot better. And a lot of people did point to, you know, Isaiah Thomas, not necessarily being ready, for that aspect of his career to be a head coach, especially on a team that was was getting there, and they, and they had a bunch of really good young talent as well as, as as well as some other old, you know, of course, your Reggie Millers or whatever, your your, your veteran talent as well. But a team that immediately then, you know, post Isaiah started having some really really good seasons put together. Uh, but yeah, that was uh, that was that. And um, in June of 2006, Oh, uh, wait, the Knicks, wait, you're, oh you're, sorry, you're oh we bounce the, yeah, again. Damn yeah, it, yeah, I yeah. forgot. God damn it, so, Isaiah. Yes, sir. I forget. Yeah, of course. Yes, So God. It's
0: Donnie. that's okay. <laughs> that's You right. no, sorry, yeah. Dolan, Dolan, Dolan. <laughs> yeah, Donnie was good in this situation. Yeah, no, Donnie's fine. Donnie's fine. Dolan. <laughs> so so in, uh, in in December two thousand three, uh, the New York Knicks hire Isaiah Thomas as president of basketball operations. Yeah, it, not good. Because of course they did. <laughs> yes, there's uh, a, a lot of terrible trades, which a couple of which we'll uh, talk about uh, bringing in, um, you know, washed up high price uh, stars like a uh, Stefan Marbury and. Um, Steve Francis and uh, that sort of thing, uh, some, some of the worst, uh, cap management and, uh, trades in uh, NBA history. And even you know, in, in fairness to him, you know, probably just operating with what, you know, Jim Dolan wanted him to do. Uh, however, you know, also a huge sexual harassment, uh, scandal and lawsuit that uh, goes on uh, during the time that he's personally involved in. So, uh, uh, so not great. And eventually, uh, Jim Dolan, um, after, uh, Thomas and coach Larry Brown have feuded for the part of the season, a situation which Larry Brown had uh, certainly his part in and a fault in as well. It wasn't completely Isaiah there, but uh, eventually uh, Dolan decides to make Thomas the uh, coach, you know, which makes a, a certain amount of sense. You know, give him, OK, this is the team you put together now try to coach them. And um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that didn't go great either, um, although he probably was a little bit more suited to be a coach than he was
1: to be an executive yeah i agree as well and it's good to know that the uh, the knicks have finally calmed down and, and now they're just a well-run <laughs> tight oh, yeah. ship operation Definitely. too. Yeah. so it's good to know that you know after this debacle they said all right let's get this thing together let's go and and they've been you know uh just a pillar of success since then so it's really good um yeah, so in June 2006, the Knicks fired uh, head coach Larry Brown and owner James Dolan, replaced him with Isaiah Thomas. Uh, he put some weird ultimatums on him that they needed progression and all that sort of thing. Well, it didn't do that great because the Knicks struggled. Uh, they went 33 and 49, then 23 and 59 in Thomas's two years as coach. Um, then he was kind of let go, but thankfully, Dolan just never lets Isaiah go too far because then he served as a consultant. To the team, reporting directly to Donnie Walsh, who I'm imagining just threw every memo in the trash immediately, um, and then that was the end of uh, Isaiah Thomas. Now he he then did you know he's at FIU and um, as a coach, and then I know he did the New York Liberty as, as something or another. I, I don't yeah, know. Still, he is with the Liberty still. Yeah, is so, he still at the Liberty? I'll go yes. him. Okay, cool. Yeah, so, I thought he would get bored of that within like two days, but so, that's good enough.
0: Yeah, so he's in Madison Square Garden. Yeah, of course, you know having a. Um, you know, a guy who was sued for sexual harassment as the yeah. uh, you know. Oh God,
1: he was thinking. in the same building, right?
0: Oh, yeah, not God. Uh, <laughs> not totally ideal, but. Uh, anyway, <sighs> can't let him go. Can't let Thomas Isaiah go. I mean, no, when you make great trades,
1: like the one you're going to talk about here in a minute. You can, you yeah.
0: Know. Uh, you know, when you, when you love someone, you set them free <laughs> and then let them come back and run your women's basketball team. That's exactly uh, yes. yeah, the, that's the, the old same. adage. Yes, yes, it's, right. a adage. So. so, um, yeah, the, the worst trade, and there's definitely a lot to uh, choose from, but I think this is a pretty obvious one is, um, Trading away – the the main pieces were Mike Sweetney, Tim Thomas. No big loss there. But then the uh, 2006 first round pick that ended up being LaMarcus Aldridge and then a a 2007 first round pick that ended up being um, Joachim Noah. And um, that was for – I don't know why I always want to say – even though I know it's Joachim Noah and I hear it a million times, I don't know why I want to say Joachim first. (laughs) That's a weird uh, mental thing for me. I don't know why. But anyway, um, Joachim Noah – And uh, he was traded for – uh, they they acquired Eddie Curry and uh, a 2007 first round draft pick Wilson Chandler. Eddie Curry was the huge prize here and then he ended up, you know, having this huge contract that they couldn't insure because he had this heart issue. And which they knew about before because it, it was very
1: well known. Right. <laughs> so yeah.
0: Um and uh you know, he just ended up being a a, a basically total disaster getting almost you know, maybe a, a year of okay play out of him before, you know, things went really bad. Um they didn't get much out of Tony Davis. He he was a good player, but he was you know, kind of advanced in his career at that point. Um, Ah, uh, they did get Wilson Chandler out of it, I, I guess. You know, which was uh, pretty good, and you know, ended up, he's been a good player for his career for you know a little bit with the Knicks and, of course, with uh Denver. But um, yeah, that was uh, losing out on those two, uh, you know, first round draft picks that were both excellent picks was uh, uh you know, pretty bad. I mean, they did get Joe Kimno eventually, so
1: you know, yeah. Yeah, and if it makes anybody feel better, the Bulls immediately traded LaMarcus Aldridge for Tyrus Thomas. So that's true. So if that may, if there's any silver lining for Knicks yeah. fans is that the Bulls screwed it up too. So there,
0: there you go. Yeah. So I, I'm going to say, man, Tyrus Thomas looked like he was going to be really good.
1: Yeah, I, I that's yeah, that's one
0: that fooled me. Like, cause he just, I, I mean, he, he had, the, he had the length and he, he just had the shot blocking and he had, uh, you know, and I was far less sophisticated about basketball, you know,
1: watching at the time. Not that I'm so it, like, it's fair. Ex- no, cause Lamarcus now, was but. like slow and kind of boring and like, and he yeah. still kind of is, you know what I mean? Like Lamarcus yeah. Aldridge yeah. isn't like a player I, that like jumps off the page at you. But yeah, Tyrus was, especially the the problem was that NCAA tournament. He was awesome for LSU and he was just all over the place. He was hustling, dunking, getting rebounds everywhere. Yeah. And, and it was, it was like, people were just enamored with this guy's skill. And then, yeah, of course, he... uh he like many players decided. You know, I'm really good at taking jump shots. It's like, yeah, you're really not. You know, the Josh no. Smith school of right. of you know, I should take more jump shots. I don't know why I, I I don't know why I hustle and cut to the basket when I could just take an 18 foot jump shot all the time. So
0: yeah, I mean, he just was a guy who looked like he had every athletic tool, and he's yeah, like yeah, when I saw him at LSU, you know, for a handful of games, probably if that, he yeah, I mean, he just looked like he played her It looked like he would be a real you know good player, and actually yeah. pr- production wise, he wasn't that bad at first, and then yeah, eventually it, uh, you know whatever the, the the effort waned or whatever happened there and
1: uh yeah it was uh not not a good decision no no he would always have these like he, he would have a spot like it'd be like a week where he'd have like really good games like all right here we go and then you just get dumb and like do really stupid things after that but uh yeah he ended up uh yeah not not a great run but uh ended up being a, a serviceable player but of course not not marcus aldridge so yes um so i would say
0: the um all right i'm, I'm sorry um so next we have Wes Unselt, and uh, he was, uh, of course, you know, the great Bullets uh, star um, MVP, won a championship in 78, and uh, they, they went to the uh, finals on uh, four occasions when he was uh, there in the 70s. And um, uh, then eventually uh, went on to become the uh, coach of the team late in the
1: 80s. Yeah, he uh, assisted the, uh, the Bullets in the 87-88 season under Kevin Lockery. Uh, uh until then he took over after twenty seven games and led the Bullets to a, a respectable thirty and twenty five record. Uh, at this point, the Bullets were the two-headed Malones with uh, the aging Moses and the emerging Jeff Malone. Uh, the team also had uh, this, this particular team had Bernard King and a very young Minute Bull as well, who had still not really kind of figured out exactly what he was going to do in the NBA or, or where he kind of fits. Uh, later would, you know, of course, uh, be a very serviceable player, even though he had, you know, his, of course, his, his huge limitations. But uh, Ansel then assumed the full uh, coaching duties at the beginning of the 88-89 season and held that post until 93-94. So he held it for quite a while. Uh, unfortunately, he compiled a two, uh, 202-3 3.45 overall record as the Washington franchise uh, began fading into obscurity, which they've only just, you know, in the last 10 years uh, basically came out of. But, uh, yeah, a decent run there at the beginning, but then kind of fell on, on hard times later. Uh, but I, I think a decent head coach overall. I mean, given the talent levels of that team, uh, not ideal. But, um We'll, we'll get to that here in a moment because he uh, also did not help that <laughs> very much in the late 90s. But Right, right. So, yes,
0: he, he became the general manager um, in 1996. Uh, they did make the playoffs in 97, which was the – I think the first time in a while that they had made the uh, playoffs. Um, and um, it actually seemed like they had a promising team. They, they had uh, Chris Webber. Um, you know, they, they had some young talent, but uh, made a, a a couple of rough moves. We'll, we'll say, say the, first, the the best move first was um, October 2nd, 1996. They signed Ben Wallace as a free agent, and he actually played um, three seasons there. The first season did not play a whole lot, but the uh, second and third, 98, 99 seasons, they, he actually did play, uh, you know, uh, quite a bit and, and, and was effective. It, it was not yet known what a defensive force he would become, but he you know was a stout
1: rebounder and, um, you know, was pretty good there. Um, yeah, you could see the elements of what he would become, too. And you saw it in Orlando, too, with this one season in Orlando, where it's right. like, yeah, he didn't have all the refinement. But you could see it. This dude was really good at getting rebounds and, and doing those sort of things. So, yeah, it was, it was definitely a good because, I mean, out of out of an obscure, you know, Virginia Union University, really an obscure player overall. So, yeah, really good idea to kind of go grab him and, and bring him into the forefront of the NBA at the point when, you know, there was really no reason to ever sign a guy like a Ben Wallace or whatever. So, yeah, definitely definitely a solid pick there.
0: Yes. Uh the I'll pick up. Right. Yeah, absolutely. The uh the worst move I, I, I picked two. One was uh May fourteenth, nineteen ninety eight, trading away Chris Weber to the Sacramento Kings for Mitch Richmond and Otis Thorpe. Uh both guys uh pretty old and um and, and definitely you know past their prime and Weber was you know in, in his mid mid to late mid 20s 26 I think or, or so and you know was about to of course you know kick off the best run of his career finally finding his his way in a Sacramento and you know being a uh incredible player there so that was definitely not a good situation you know I mean, Weber definitely had some um you know issues with getting along with people early on in his career so they, their hand may have been forced there but that was a uh a tough one to swallow the other one um was uh, trading away Ben Wallace along with Terry Davis, Tim Legler, and Jeff McGinnis to the Magic for Isaac Austin. So not much... uh,
1: (laughs) I don't get why you would make
0: that move. I mean, you know, they didn't... They didn't know what they had with Ben Wallace, and there was no reason for them necessarily to know what they had in Ben Wallace. Isaac Austin was terrible. (laughs) Right. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, he was... Right, yeah, he's better than Isaac. Isaac Austin, so that they may need to clear some roster spots or whatever. There and Jeff McGinnis yeah. he had, had a few years of being a decent yeah, right. player too, so that was a uh, not a great one. The Weber one, I think, was uh, obviously more damaging than the uh, you know the Wallace one. Well, although I guess if Wallace had emerged the way that he you know had if for Washington instead of Detroit, then that would have been pretty good. So, um, but yes, that that is about it for uh, for what's Yep, nothing else. Yes. So, uh, and saving the best for last, uh, Jerry West, I would say, has the best uh, combination of playing, coaching, and uh, uh, uh here, if that's a word. Um of anyone here, uh, of course, was um, you know the 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 great uh, other Laker, along with Elgin Baylor in the uh, '60s and early '70s. Fourteen time All Star, uh, finally won an NBA championship after uh, after many tries in '72, and twelve uh, time All NBA uh, player. One of the one of the great guards of all time. Um, and then after retiring for the le- uh, after retiring, there's some very strange uh, weirdness that led him to eventually become the uh, coach of the uh, Lakers. He actually. Uh, There was a um, lawsuit between him and Lakers owner Jack Kent Cooke after uh, West uh, decided to retire and then had a contract with the uh, team. And uh, eventually the settlement of that team ended up with uh, West
1: becoming the head coach of the team. So strange way to end it, but that's the way it worked out. Yeah, then after his coaching stint, uh, he worked as a scout for three years uh, before becoming general manager of the Lakers prior to the uh, 82-83 season. Uh, And then, yeah, you can really – Credit West for being instrumental in creating the great, you know, 80s Lakers dynasty. They won titles in 80, 82, 85, 87, and 88. A big part of him, you know, of course, the the 85, 87, 88 team is probably the the most credit to to West of kind of putting his fingerprint on there as well. But, you know, Scott before that, so he has some elements of that as well. Um, Then I think uh, to his credit, too, he re-energized the Lakers in the mid-2000s as well. Of course, that team didn't win any titles, but uh, the team built around Vladi, Cedric Sabalas, Nick Van Exel, um, you know, later acquiring Shaquille O'Neal, those sort of things. I and mean, he actually won a uh, Executive of the Year in the mid '90s for you know bringing the Lakers back to relevance uh, as well. And between him and uh, head coach Del Car- uh, Del Harris, uh, they got the Lakers to the Western Conference semifinals. And that's a team we've talked about uh, many, many episodes ago by a team that really gets forgotten. Of like a pretty decent Lakers team in the mid uh, mid '90s there. Uh, of course, then later in the '90s, West trades Vlade Divac for Kobe Bryant, decent move. Uh, signs free agent Shaquille O'Neal, also a very good move, and then acquires you know uh, six time NBA champion head coach Phil Jackson to uh, be the front man of the Lakers, and that works out quite well for the old Lakers because then they end up winning a few titles there. Uh, 2002, he becomes uh, the general manager of the Memphis Grizzlies, and of course the Grizzlies don't have the success the success that the Lakers had, but I think West molded them into a pretty decent team. I mean, they they you know were a team that was a downtrodden franchise. Of course, had moved from from Vancouver to Memphis. You know he he brings some stability there, and then he brings in guys like a Paul Gasol. He you, you know shrewd hirings like a uh, Hubie Brown as a head coach. You know guys like a Jason Williams and stuff. Many de- decent moves throughout his tenure there, and, and got them to become a, a you know a relatively decent playoff team or a team that at least was competing and not just in the doldrums of the league. Um, he retired as the Grizzlies uh, general manager in 2007, and then in May 2001 he joined up with the Golden State Warriors as an executive board member, uh, reporting directly to the new owners Joe Lankham and Peter Gruber. So um, still does some stuff there. But obviously not not in the thick of everything there, just as an executive board member. But still, uh, great tenure as an executive. One probably one of the I'm better. I mean, of all NBA executives of all time, he's right up there. And when you couple it in with you know an impressive uh, playing career as well, I mean, it's a really really great resume all around.
0: Yes, so I would say the best moves. Um, I mean, really the truly best moves are the you know the summer of '96 of getting Shaq as a free agent making the cap clearing moves that were necessary for that and then trading uh Vlade Divac for Kobe Bryant which was definitely he risked the time Vlade was a very good player and uh you know and, and Kobe you know he, he had talent but there was questions about him certainly uh whether it would work and and Jerry West was absolutely the one who believed in Kobe and it uh, obviously worked out pretty fabulously for them but uh, in the interest of uh, you know some less known trades. Um, I, I think the best one, probably, of making, you know, something out of almost nothing, was um, February 1987 trading a uh, Frank Bukowski, uh Peter Goodmanson, uh, and a, a 1987 first round pick and a 1990 second round pick. For Michael Thompson, and that's a really underrated one. In I mean, Thompson was the guy who kind of put them over the top to win the '87 and '88 championships and make the '89 finals. This was, of course, near the end of Kareem's career. He was definitely slowing down. They couldn't really, you know, um, rely on him necessarily, you know, full time anymore, and and be able to. you you know get as much out of him as they had and also thompson was able to kind of give them a different look allowed them to do you know still do more fast breaking and do kind of the fast paced stuff that Kareem really couldn't do anymore so that was a that's kind of an underrated one in terms of you know maybe they do win another championship you know even after that even without thompson but i don't think they win two in a row and go to three straight finals you know after that i think he was you know able to put them over the top on that level
1: Yeah, I agree. And he added some much needed, you know, athleticism and length to that team as well. And a little bit of I mean, he wasn't super young at that point. Uh, Of course, he was, you know, in his 30s or whatever, but still played a a really good role on that team. And yeah, I think it helped spell Kareem a little bit, too. So, yeah, I absolutely 100 percent agree with you that 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 he was a huge part in in them uh, being able to kind of sustain that dynasty. Yes. So the uh, worst
0: uh, move is the 1984 draft. Um, they had the uh, 23rd pick, which I, it was the last pick in that draft, and they selected uh, who is affectionately known as Earl Effing Jones, and uh, he was uh, <laughs> like he was uh, about seven foot one, 190 pounds. He had played at a small college and had a lot of athleticism and a lot of talent, but you know he came into camp and. Um, He was completely clueless um, from uh, Jeff Perlman's books, Showtime, some of of the great quotes here. Um, So the uh, seventh round pick for the team, uh, Richard Hainish, who was in camp there, said he would get dizzy every time he ran up and down the court. Whenever people asked him to compare himself to someone, he'd say Ralph Sampson. Right. If Ralph Sampson were soft (laughs) and stupid Um, and he he was described as um, – his teeth were yellowed and rotting, and Pat Riley demanded that the Josh Rosenfeld, the media relations director, take him to the dentist. Um, and uh, he also. Um was uh, it, it just completely just a failure on every level as far as just being a rookie screw up. Uh, there's some stories about, uh, you know, Magic Johnson just losing his patience with him and just throwing passes that would completely, that it would always knock him in the head. I mean, it was just, um, you know, um, it, it just completely uh, just wanted to get it out of there as a. Uh, you know, as soon as possible. Um, and Jerry West said no work ethic to speak of a complete waste of talent and the most disappointing draft pick I've ever been involved in. So, you know, he was not picked at particularly <laughs> high. So it's not necessarily, you know, it may not be like the literally the worst, but I think as far as the story goes, it's uh,
1: I, I think he's a good choice for the worst. I did love this little excerpt from Showtime as well. You, you included in our notes here. It said, I, uh, there was one day in training camp where uh, Dave Wall, who was uh, one of Pat Riley's assistant coaches was asked to call Jones because Jones did not show up for practice. Uh, Wolf says, Where are you? Jones replies, I overslept. Wolf says, We'll grab a taxi and get over here. Jones says, A taxi? That's going to cost me $50. And then Wolf says, But Earl, it's going to cost you a $100 fine if you don't show up. Uh, Wolf says, There was a lengthy pause, which was Earl doing the math, and then he never arrived. So that's, yes. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's, that's a good so one. Incredible. Yes. <laughs> I love that story.
0: Yes. Oh, boy. So um, a few other key ones. We're just going to mention some names because we were obviously running pretty long here. But, uh, you know, uh, guys who have also done the trifecta, uh, Larry Brown Dave DeBuscher, Red Holzman, Dan Issel, Fo Jackson, Steve Kerr, Kevin McHale, Don Nelson, Pat Riley, Doc Rivers, Bill Sharman, and Lenny Wiggins—you know a few other top fifty, you know all-time players on that list. So obviously some great ones there, and then other guys who were you know lesser players um, or you know not quite as well known. Uh, Mike Dunleavy, Danny Ainge, uh, and, and Danny Ainge right now is of course you know he's he, it, it, when you listen to this he's probably going to be bragging about the trade that he almost made. So we'll uh, we'll enjoy that from uh, Danny Ainge of course watch him actually finally make a trade you know we're, we're recording this before the trade deadline so watch him actually make the a trade and then make me look foolish but I'm willing to take the risk um, other guys Al Adels Al Bianchi uh, Vince Borla Alan Bristow ML Carr Doug Collins Mike D'Antoni Vinny Del Negro Bob Fierick Richie Guerin Alex Hannum Buddy Jeanette Slick Leonard Gene Littles John Lucas Jack McCloskey, Jack McMahon, Jim Paxson, Jim Pollard, Kevin Pritchard, Jerry Reynolds, Fred Shouse, Gene Sue, Rod Thorne, Butch Van Predikoff, Kiki Vandaway Dave Wool, Larry Drew, Matt Gukas, George Johnson, Charles Jones, and Charles Smith. So that is all. You, you did a lot. Of, you did a lot of research in, uh, in in putting this list together. So it, it deserves to be shared.
1: <laughs> it was not easy. Yes, unfortunately, it was it was much more difficult than when I uh, said we should do this topic. But anyway, it worked out. And now we have a complete list um, that will hopefully use ever again i don't know how we're ever gonna use this again but if anybody wants this list i can more than happy to send it to you because i spent a lot of time on it so I'd, I'd be happy to share it with you so anyway. i'm yes. sure there's Good some pro- yeah. I'm, I'm sure there's a project we can use it for at some point perhaps so exactly yeah the, the kevin pritchard project that we're gonna the oh, upcoming yeah. summer oh, yeah, series yeah. breaking right. down every move that kevin pritchard ever made so that'll absolutely. be absolutely that'll, that'll be fun yeah,
0: that'll, be, that'll be enjoyable yeah <laughs> all right rich Will we got anything else uh no i think we're all set all right, well, cool. Well, uh, thanks everyone for uh, checking us out, and uh, hopefully, you've been enjoying uh, the podcast. We've been giving more and more of them to you lately, kind of uh, adjusting our schedule. We're going to uh, have more frequent episodes, which hopefully people are enjoying. You can find us at uh, the step Back at fansided.com. You can also uh, find us on Facebook or Twitter, just uh, it's at over and back NBA for both. <laughs> And also you can subscribe to us and leave a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere you listen to your podcast. So thanks for listening and we'll be back again soon.